Hello, listeners, and welcome to the latest episode of Alpha Bunga Bunga. It's a politics podcast. Oh, he's been shut down. He's been shut down for all the controversial things he was saying. That's good. I mean, I'm quite happy that he got shut down. <laughs> I think we'd be the last one to get shut down. Why? Well, you've, you've, you've got a, a Lenin fetish or something else with David Aranovich. I don't think yeah, that Lenin... Oh, that guy. What a Len... Oh, wow. <laughs> Lenin isn't. Lenin isn't the favourite. Uh, So today I'm joined by two normal, the two normal guys. Were you going to say two regular. normal guys? <laughs> they're not. They're not normal. They're regular. Yeah, they're definitely regular. not. They're frequently on this podcast. So firstly, we have Phil Cunliffe. Say hi, Phil. Hey. And Alex Hockley. Say hi. Hi. So today we're going to be talking about Russia. But before that, um, what have you been thinking about this week, Phil? Um, I've been thinking about Game of Thrones, so kind of tying into uh, what we chatted about in the last podcast. And I realized, like, um, and there won't be any spoilers, so don't worry anyone who's listening, or George, because I don't think George has seen it yet. Um, I realized, like, there are no more strong male characters left on TV anywhere, particularly on Game of Thrones. Every character, male character, is basically like, you know, a cuck. You wouldn't want to, uh, you know, if you had like a male child, a child of the male gender variety, you would not wish to expose them to any of these characters. Um, and the only strong male character left is the Night King. So <laughs> I used to support Daenerys Targaryen. Now I support the Night King because he's the only strong male character left. And all this bullshit about no like strong women, no strong female role models. I mean, who, the, who what fucking TV are they watching? It's ridiculous. There, every single fucking character, lead character, is a woman. There are no, no strong so male much, models left. There's so much to unpack there. I don't know where to start with that. Like, I mean, first of all, this is a relatively new tendency. So, like, yeah, maybe that's the case with certain shows, but across the board, that isn't the case. There's still a whole bunch of shows and films with like manic pixie dream girl characters who I fall in love with because I'm the type of sucker that appeals to and that kind of thing. Um, it all sounds a little bit. I've been trying to think of strong male characters, right? So, like, you know... This all sounds a little like... bit men's rights activist, Phil. I'm a little bit no, worried. No, Alex, we, we planned this. We need to appeal to the Daily Mail reading segment of the population, which we've is already, quite large. We've already got Brexit. <laughs> so, no, Phil, I, I, I want to hear more about this, this completely tenable view that you're outlining here. I blame Homer Simpson. So... Homer Simpson killed the patriarchy, man. Like, if you think, you know, Homer Simpson kind of buffoonish, um, stu you know, much stupider than his wife, um, kind of has no right to be in charge of the family, has absolutely no kind of uh, respect or authority. Um, and that's, you know, sin ever since Homer Simpson, basically all male characters in major dramas have gone downhill so if you think of like who, who and of do you course have, phil like, as, as a phil as a, yourself as a committed idealist of course will blame pop culture for these transformations and not anything else well i'm sure it's picking up things in the <laughs> contemporary culture like you know feminism and stuff but um you know basically like the night king is like a paragon of traditional masculinity <laughs> he keeps his feelings under control <laughs> he clearly he clearly has like authority he's not crying and hugging his bros he's not like we know, don't see what happens off camera girlfriend. he might be a little bit <laughs> repenting about you know all the people he's killed but then he like goes back into the public sphere and just is, is a machine of killing 
Um, and he's like, and, I, he's, and, then, he, he, and then he's, and then he's like later, and he's then he's later on the, like the shrink sofa going, I don't know why I do this. I feel like I'm driven to do this. I, I just can't stop no, but myself. This is why he's a strong character. Cause he doesn't do that. So he's not like Tony Soprano, right? He right. doesn't have a shrink. He just gets on with the job. Nobody asks him how he's feeling, you know, like they know he's got a job to do and he just gets on with it. So I hope, I hope he like, you know, like he brings, brings home the bacon. Era. Well, he I'm... brings home a new era of like rational, discipline self-control less emotion more like you know steely determination to uh westeros basically. so phil phil when's your piece on this coming out in spiked Should we it? <laughs> <laughs> now that you mention it i can see i can clearly see it's going to sell so um and i'm pretty speechless on this on this topic but i think we can return to the yeah uh, like to the topic of george you can't TV. see the symbols i'm making like that kind of you know move on thing you know like where you <laughs> widen your eyes and you go <laughs> okay so um to move on to a to a, a, a strong male role model alex you've been thinking about angles <laughs> that's right oh, i thought you meant me um yeah angles that's right he so there's this new statue which they put up in manchester of angles which i thought was a nice touch have you seen the statue it's good yeah yeah I saw that in pictures. The news said it was like Phil Collins is working on the statue. I was like, oh, fuck, no, have we not heard enough of him? Anyway, it turns out it's a different Phil Collins. Um, it's a guy who's a sculptor, which is probably better than getting Genesis Phil Collins to do But a not as good angles. as getting the Times uh, leader writer, ex, ex Blairite guy. He's got a, he's got a, a, a great eye for, for right. a big picture. <laughs> um, yeah, but anyway, so like uh, commenting on this, like I think it was kind of nice. Nice thing for the city of Manchester to kind of put up there uh, to honor uh, a longtime resident and, and factory owner in the city. Um, <laughs> and, but so anyway, so the land factories are important. Factories are important, um, but you don't necessarily need angles to run it. I mean, I think the whole idea of what he wrote is that you don't need guys like him to be running it. So like you've got uh, in response to this, Daniel Hannan, who's an MEP, and kind of a, the right-wing architect of Brexit, as he's been called, um, who does this spiel on, like, starts off his, his, his common piece and I think some, like, thing like International Business Times going, you know, Adolf, Adolf Hitler was a great connoisseur of architecture. He was so fond of Manchester's Midland Hotel that he ordered the Luftwaffe to spare it during the Blitz. Ah, but you wouldn't do this with Hitler, so why would you do this with Engels? Like, his whole idea, of course, like, communism killed whatever, one trillion people, whereas Nazism only killed, you know, 20 million. So, you know, let's balance that one out. Do the maths, kids. Um, <laughs> but one trillion is more than 20 million. So there should be like many, many more communist statues because they, you know, they've got the numbers, right? Yeah, they've, they've achieved. That's right. I don't. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they're commemorating like a multiple of millions of how many they've killed. But anyway, it, it, it's 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 like just awful and you say you don't know where to start with that because like of course I don't, is it even worth a response i mean it's so obvious that like Engels wasn't personally responsible for killing anyone i was going to say i think it probably does matter merit a response but probably you know not the one that daniel hannon is expecting <laughs> yeah i mean i, I don't know I, I i what i was just going to say is that you know i think what zizek's response to this is i think is right which is even like notwithstanding that it was Hitler was actually responsible for mass murder, whereas Engels was not. Uh, even if you wanted to tie him indirectly to it, you can say, you know, you cannot imagine Nazism freed, a, a Nazism which doesn't involve totalitarian oppression and mass murder. Like, it's inherent to those ideas. Whereas one can, whatever 
the, the minor faults with Stalinism and the rest, uh, you can still imagine a communism without totalitarian oppression and mass murder. I mean, that's not what it proposes, whereas Nazism explicitly proposes that, right? I don't think Daniel Hannan can imagine that. I don't think he has a very wide imagination. I mean, I haven't met the guy, but clearly a, clearly a bollock. So my opinion on this is that this is basically too, it's too dumb of a take that you can't, like, you, you just can't get in there and make any good points because it will just, it will just kind of suck you into its vortex of just stupidity, false equivalences, and just, just banality. I think... So I'd, yeah, if you can come up with something good. No, I mean, I, I was just going to, I was just going to quote a, a famous poet, uh, he once wrote that, I know that life won't break me. When I come to call, he won't forsake me. I'm loving angles instead. Another another great poet said, uh, uh, my mama always told me don't <laughs> oh, argue God. with fools because people from a distance can't tell who is who. And that's what I think of Daniel Hannan. So they... I don't know, man. I mean, I mean, I think, so, you know, I mean, I agree with everything that's been said, but I, and I think the Jijek, you know, line is a good one. Um, but I do think it's in, you know, there is no avoiding it because I do think it is a, um, influential stranded opinion um but also i think it's interesting because it seems to me it's so weak i mean it's so it's interesting in itself that um you know the scrabbling around for um the scrabbling they you know there's clearly kind of um discontent or unease at least on the ranks of the libertarian right that you have a resurgence in um, left-wing ideas, you know, broadly speaking. Yeah, totally. No, but it, it's desperate. It's, it's, it's the right-wing version of shouting fascist, you know, shouting well, I think co communist mass absolutely. murder. Absolutely. this is the point. I mean, it's so it's, <laughs> it's so weak. I mean, this is what's striking about it. It's such a kind of, um, it's such a weak move, and particularly, you know, the deeper that this stuff recedes into the Cold War and into memory. The fact that you can't make a positive argument for liberty, I mean, the left can't make a positive argument for liberty, which is obviously one of the thing that kind of one of the things that kind of cripples it and hobbles it. But the fact that the right can't make a positive right. argument for liberty either and can only kind of try and terrify people into what are increasingly kind of, um, you know, historical hobgoblins of, or hobgoblins of historical memory is interesting in itself. You know, and Daniel Hannan is meant to be a leading light, supposedly an intellectual on that on that scene. And the fact that he comes up with such a totally moronic comparison, you know, I mean, there are things you could say about Engels um, where you could kind of uh, directly implicate him in negative, you know, outcomes, whatever. But to just kind of do the kind of necrophiliac, dig the bodies up and count them. Oh, and by the way, Engels isn't even has any kind of moral culpability for this is just so stupid. It has to make you wonder, like, um, whether or not they're prepared for what's coming for them. Yeah, good. A good point. But on the, on the flat plane of the bourgeois intellect, molehills do appear as mountains. That's why Daniel Hannan might be considered to be a leading light. But just to move us on a little bit, I, I came across this stat that three quarters, so 73% of Democrats, would give up alcohol for the rest of their life if it meant President Trump would were to be impeached tomorrow. <laughs> so this is a... So my question to the two of you is what political event would you be willing to give up booze for? Oh boy! Just to watch, or it's like... got to be a big one. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, you have to be you have to be kind of of the puritanically inclined as as America still remains to kind of wish that, and that's like leaving aside the 
fact that a Trump impeachment would be a disaster because you know he's yeah. he's he's the he's the legitimate leader of the United States who was voted in and uh, and it would just put like the Republicans in charge and give them a much cleaner run at what they want to do. Um, he's a nice complicating factor in the American ruling class. Yay Trump! Um, but yeah, I what, what I would what I would give up booze for like politically, I'd have to set my ambitions higher than they currently are today. I guess I'm gonna, I get, you know, I, I, a worldwide social revolution. Yeah, only a only a revolutionary organization can't see anything else that would be worth giving up booze for. Oh, and yeah. Al, and Allah, obviously, but apart from that. So there's so basically, we're 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 kind of more interested in booze than than day to day <laughs> politics. That's, 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 the way, that's the only way you can get through day to day politics. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. I do have a I do have a, a nice nice beer for this uh, this politics chat with with you guys. Um, but that's but that's so, a, but that's the thing about that's the thing about you know you know kind of politics like especially anyone committed to any sort of revolutionary politics is that it posits the end of politics. Like you're only interested in politics because you're trying to reach the end of politics, um, and the, and in the meantime yeah. you drink. Oh, <laughs> and this is a good this exactly. is a good point. After the yeah. revolution, who knows what sorts of drugs there'll be. Be like, oh, that booze is terrible. It gives you a hangover. Try this new thing. Gets you drunk, no hangover. Okay, fine. So we can we can supersede the condition where alcohol is necessary. Um, good, good for us in the future. So yeah, to move on to to the main thing that um, I really wanted to talk about um, is Russia. Russia seems to have returned as the the hobgoblin or the the bogeyman of of a lot of Western media, particularly in in the US, it's on the periphery of the European continent and has been of of European history. And in the late 18th century, the Russian government boundary between Yekaterinburg and Toyman, I think that's how you pronounce it, Tsarist prisoners would grab, and uh, uh, when they're being transported to the east, would grab a last handful of of European earth. So it's, I think it's an interesting topic to discuss because it's both in and out of Europe, um, which I think it's one of the things that we've been talking about. Um, you know various points in this in this podcast what is europe and what is it going to be going forward so i think what we really want to get to grips with is what explains this kind of recent resurgence of russophobia if that's how you pronounce it um and the increasing kind of re- recourse to ru- narratives of russian interference russian spies and all this kind of um dodgy russians so yeah that's that so that's that's the, that's the first question i think for both the two of you is what's going on with all this kind of talk of Russian interference in the American presidential election of, of 2016? I mean, this is a story that seems to, to, to run and run. So what, what are your hot takes on, on this? I, mean, I think we lose, we lose grasp of how absolutely insane this has become. It's become, it's become a little yeah. bit normalized. And it was yeah. already completely bonkers, like 10 years ago. Um, but it just seems to escalate way beyond what you can imagine. Like, this is like 9-11 trutherism becoming mainstream. No, I think you're absolutely right. Like, um, it is hard to it is hard to capture the full scale of the insanity. And um, I don't think it's... Um, I mean, it's not escalated to the level of kind of public disgrace and humiliation that, say, McCarthyism got to. And, you know, it's always a difficult one to trot out because it's trotted out so frequently. But in terms of capturing the level of um, paranoia that kind of has gripped um, the highest levels of the establishment, I mean, I think that's the kind of key thing is when a conspiracy theory kind of percolates to establishment outlets and becomes um, 
I mean, like, you know, like both of you have said, it's something which has gone beyond any kind of, you can no longer explain it by reference to the origin or the specific empirical claims that are made with reference to what the Russians supposedly did. I mean, so what the claim is, is that they, you know, there was a Hillary Clinton's campaign manager clicked on a phishing link and that this allowed Russian hackers allegedly to get to get hold of um, the Democratic email server. But the scale of the hysteria and the supposed connections and um, the kind of claims that are made, you know, I mean, serious people kind of insinuating that Donald Trump is somehow a Russian agent or that um, Russian agents are kind of running him as an operative from the White House to all intents and purposes. It is hard to think of the same level of kind of um, pervasive political paranoia. Yeah. So we had at first it was this idea that Russian hackers had had got hold of through uh, Podesta, John Podesta's um, incompetence, had got hold of Hillary's emails and then released a, a series of supposedly extremely damaging but in all honesty quite tame uh, emails but now it's it's gone to a to a new level with this supposedly bona fide smoking gun the news of donald trump jr meeting a russian lawyer in order to take a meeting to get compromising um material on on clinton and at the same time this um gop operative peter smith um who apparently committed suicide with a suicide note, which included the phrase in capitals, there has been no foul play, which seems pretty legit to me. So I guess one of the one of the sort of questions as this is emerging is that that somebody listening to this who's who's probably, you know, a bit more credulous and thinks that this could be going on is isn't there kind of growing evidence that there seems to be a really strong link between Trump and, and Russia? The idea that, that that an American administration or that senior political figures in the United States might be having meetings with those of a foreign power, like fucking stop the press, right? I mean, it's, I don't know why this is especially news. And the, to the degree to which there was Russian and in big quotation marks interference in the American election, it's that Trump received information and perhaps help. It's effectively quite passive. Um, the idea that American democracy has been hacked uh, is just insane. It's like the, the jump from one to the other is quite a big leap. At the end of the day, you can say, well, it benefited one side, right? That that it maybe gave one side a leg up in in so far as they had information, um, which they were able to deploy to electoral ends. Um, but because it benefited one side, you've got the the Democrats cry arsing about it, uh, which is just sore loserism, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I mean, but it, I mean, it it's a total distraction from failures of the Democratic campaign that were nothing to do with any conceivable foreign interference. I like that Pussy Riot came out and criticized this. Yeah, that was really interesting. Um, so, and I think that was also, in fact, in the in the um, biz, IB Times in which Daniel Hannan published a piece about Engels, the Engels statue, rather. And there was a brilliant um, interview with um, one of the founders of Pussy Riot, who made some great remarks, um, you know, great kind of observations about Putin's political persona, but also made the point that it's very clearly a diversionary tactic for the Democrats. Um, and it fulfills so many kind of political functions that you can see um, its appeal. Uh, you know, not only does it kind of uh, allow them to evade accountability for a disastrous campaign strategy, it allows them to evade any kind of internal reorganization after having fielded such a disastrous candidate against somebody who should have been so easy to beat. And it also 
allows them to evade having to make any kind of positive case. They can um, sling mud, insinuate about foreign influence, um, claim the nationalist kind of high ground, claim to be defenders of the security state, um, not to mention all the validation of their security, the deep, deep state security apparatus within the US that has come with the rallying around the CIA and the FBI and all of these other deeply sinister agencies as a result of the perceived kind of malign Russian influence. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, she makes the point that it's a diversionary kind of strategy. And you can see that it just fulfills so many needs for the American left that it's it suddenly becomes very obvious as to why it just doesn't go away. Yeah, I mean, so, so yeah, in fact, so just just to read out the, the the quote from this interview that you're that you're referring to, because I think it's a really good one. So David Sorota, the journalist, asks, "Do you believe um, the American political class and media exaggerate the threat of Putin for its own ends?" And she and so this is um, I'm not going to pronounce this correctly, but it's Tola Konakova says, "Yeah, they're just looking for a scapegoat." And you know, for Trump, it's Muslims and Mexican workers, and for the liberal media in America, it's Putin. So I mean, is I mean, I guess my question, Alex, and maybe this is what you were going to talk about anyway, is is there any more to this than it's blame shifting and it's kind of scapegoating from particularly the the kind of the the non-Bernie Democrat left or so-called left um, because they can't really come to terms with the with the abject failure of, of of Hillary's campaign still. I mean, look, obviously, if it turns out that they actually hacked the election, like they hacked the election election machines to spit out a different result, then you know, okay, fair enough, we can discuss it then. But in absence of any evidence of that, I think. I think the important thing is to look at this a little bit historically because this hasn't come out entirely out of nowhere uh, subsequent to Trump's election. There's a history of escalating tensions with Russia. And I mean, I would put that in, in the context of after the end of the Cold War, the West casting around for enemies and it had its war on drugs and it, then it had war on terror. And as that seems to be completely falling apart and there's an exhaustion around the war on terror, and domestically, it doesn't work anymore. Trump, you know, the politics of fear around terror doesn't play in the way that it did 10 years ago. And so there's been this pivot, at least at, at, a kind, of, at the kind of discursive ideological level, towards Russia as the big enemy, because that seems to... And then, like, then it's, like, pulling out all these, like, Cold War imagery, like, even suggesting that it's, like, Soviets. And, you know, like, there's, like, these slippages of the tongue where politicians will go, the Soviets, I mean, uh, the Russians, and it's, like... <laughs> yeah, I think that's... And, 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 that's... and, and the Russian response to this is pretty funny because um, unlike, for example, Islamists, who, who, when America goes, you know, Islamic terrorism or terrorism, whatever, is our great enemy. And like the Islamists go, yes, we're the great enemy. Like, let's burn the big Satan, blah, blah, blah. The Russians have just kind of trolled the US back. So the Russian embassy in the UK, which has a great Twitter account, um, goes, journalism is getting, like tweeting a, uh, an, an article alleging uh, more Russian interference in American elections. Journalism is getting rid of outdated concepts like evidence. It is pamphleteering. And then in parentheses, read Jillian Ted in the FT. <laughs> um <laughs> And then a great one, which is, this is, I mean, I think this is real. In Moscow Airport, they've got signs up trolling the U.S. saying, missed a plane, lost an election, blame it on us. Um, <laughs> another one at Moscow Airport, come closer and find out who we are planning to hack next. Which I think is a great response. So just just to pick up on one of the points that you made there, I think there's, it's kind of interesting that now it's kind of also a bit of a strand of, or, you know, I'd be interested to hear what you guys think, but... I've sort of just learned a bit of a strand of technophobia in there as well. This it's kind of this idea that, or oh, there, you know, the, the Russian um, mathematic 
kind of Soviet genius who's who's sees the matrix and is able to extract all the the information. And it's kind of a bit of a flip side of the the worries about echo chambers in kind of the that pervade a certain kind of um, milieu of, of the American liberal left, where it's like, oh, people are online now and they're exchanging fake news and they're supporting Trump. And you've also got the Russian hackers who are who are changing vote totals and, and doing all this other sort of thing. So is it, I mean, am I over-reading that, that there's technophobia in there as, as well as... I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's technophobia, but, um, but it does certainly play into kind of long-standing prejudices and stereotypes of Russians as kind of calculating and infinitely devious and just so much more clever than us kind of like you know there's this sort of American self-image as being honest and and direct and open uh and smiling and you know we do as we say more or less we're honest fair people um you know we hit back if we're hit but you know we won't we, we're not the first ones to we're not the first ones to attack and whereas the Russians are devious and scheming and and like it, it plays into that doesn't it yeah, I mean, I think it does. I mean, I think it runs deeper as well, though, like um, with the, you know, mentioning it about kind of looking for a new enemy and um, the Russians are an old enemy, you know, so I mean, it's rediscovering, um, it's rediscovering a new, it's rediscovering an old enemy afresh, I guess, and trying to explain why the Russians kind of um, return consistently as an enemy is is an interesting thing. And I mean, I think part of it is just the fact that um, they simply don't behave as they're expected to by the West. I mean, the West thinks it won it won the Cold War, and as a result, they expect kind of groveling subservience from the people who were defeated, the Russians. They expect them to behave like a defeated, surrendered power, um, with no kind of legitimate interests of their own, no kind of national political history no citizens or kind of national identity that has to be kind of accounted for or uh, responded to on on the part of the, their politicians. Um, and, you know, so a friend, a Russian friend of mine said, like, which always stayed with me, she said that in their history textbooks at school, in high school in Russia, they don't get taught that they lost. They, they get taught that they um, chose a different system. You know, so like if that, you know, if we can take that, um, as good, you know, if we take that as good coin, then the idea that the Russians, you know, perceive themselves as having, we chose capitalism and we decided to end the Soviet system, they don't perceive what happened as this kind of um, geopolitical contest in which they lost and therefore have to be subservient to the victims. And so the perceptions just entirely are misaligned. And it's unsurprising, you know, that they, um, that a country that's kind of, um, uh, re basically simply returning to its kind of traditional status in world affairs um, is not going to behave like a dog with its tail between its legs, which is basically the way the West expects everybody else to behave, but particularly those that it thinks it's defeated. But I think like what's interesting and so, makes it seem yeah, like... I mean, to kind of extend the discussion a little bit, because I think it's not just um, America where these, and I think this picks up on what you were saying, Phil, it's not just America where these these fears of Russia seem to be re-establishing themselves. There was a particularly um, strange intervention by the MP Ben Bradshaw, who said in December that it was highly probable, highly probable that Russia had interfered with the Brexit result. I guess the, the one question which I have, which I don't think is that serious, is... They didn't interfere in the Brexit result, George. I'm sorry to disappoint you. They did not interfere in the Brexit result. 
my question wasn't going to be if they did interfere with the Brexit result, can we overturn it? My question was going to be what what is what is other podcasts what are is available the who do that of what kind Russia's of thing <laughs> like trying to achieve by doing this? Is it um, taking over the world in that kind of pinky in the brain, nefarious kind of megalomaniac way? Is that is is that what's projected? Because it seems like there's a, there's a very there's a bit of an absence of of motive for a lot of these actions. Who knows, man? They're like, you know, they're so impassive and difficult to read and their climate is so cold and they're so stony faced and they have such kind of intricate schemes and they just want to get back at us. Who knows what their motive is? But whatever their motives are, they're sinister. <laughs> but this is I yeah. mean, this is this is the thing. Alex, America. Uh, any the, any further, further thoughts on, yeah. on ins, ins, inscrutable? Yeah, inscrutable foreigners. Yeah. I mean, I don't understand what the United States material motive uh, is for saber rattling against Russia. And again, this predating like the 2016 election, um, because um, Russia, they got Russia to play the game. Right. I mean, there was a certain stabilization under Putin after like the disaster of the Elson years. And Putin was like, OK, we're going to play the game. We're going to like sign up to the usual like package of, Amer- of, of Western reforms and liberal democracy and, and, all, and you know, kind of play along the kind of uh, Washington consensus game. Um, and actually, I think there's an argument that it was actually America, American pressure on Russia, which led them to go, well, you know what, fuck it. I mean, obviously, we're going to keep this capitalism thing going, um, because it's benefiting us quite well. So, I mean, like, what is it like the top 1% of Russia owns 75% of Russian wealth. So, you know, it's working out for them quite all right. But they decided not to play the game geopolitically, at least, and started to challenge the US. Um, and I guess this also plays well in Russia, because um, particularly as, as Russia's in a bit of crisis, uh, it's like it, it has a recourse to nationalism. Um, so it, it might be mutually beneficial, this kind of saber rattling at each other, right? Um, but then you also, I mean, the, despite all this, you know, you don't have any sympathy for the United States. I mean, the United States penetrates the affairs of nearly every other country to such a degree. The fact that it might get a little bit of penetration back, you know, is to be expected. Um, but the U.S. doesn't accept that. It's like a, it's a, it's, it's only a top. You've used penetration. You've used penetration too many times there yeah. in the same sentence together. But you know, like this was this was just the like Russia giving the United States a little a little bum fiddle. You know, whereas the United States fisted Russia all through the early nineties. <laughs> so it's just not even. Like this, you should be a bit more versatile. Mm, some very some very vivid language. <laughs> And some really incisive analysis. <laughs> you can apologize for list, to listeners for that. Uh, no, you can apologize. No, apologize no, I'm not. I, I don't apologize. That, that shows weak, it shows weakness. It shows weakness. You don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the night, um, the night king wouldn't apologize. You, <laughs> oh fuck! This this might have to be one of those kind of subscriber only, um, or just release to a certain like subsection, predominantly male. Of, of our listeners so re- basically all of them, all three of them <laughs> three for three um so yeah so I, th- I guess um maybe we can move on to talk about the the man putin himself before we kind of wrap up this this section because so i think it's um so he's, he's usually described as kind of a macho bully and um russia and kind of by extension russian society is described as as um, as having these these characteristics. Um, well, no, yeah. So I I think that's it's kind of interesting to see the the characterization of of a nation in the in the image of of one of its leaders, which I'm not sure happens that much elsewhere. Maybe it does, and I just don't just miss it. 
Um, but there's a kind of maybe a tendency to say, okay, Putin plus Trump equals the end of democracy, the end of end of the world. And so when people saw them getting together and there were tedious analyses of their body language, it was like this is the this is the the meeting of, of the modern evil could bring down the world. Do you, do you, did you did you guys sense this, or is this just my do we, personal do we paranoia? Agree? No, I I don't think they are the evil pair who are going to bring down the world. I disagree with that. I mean, there's a thing that you know, Pussy Riot woman, I Natasha Tonotsky. I can't remember her name. I'm sorry. I'm Nicola, sorry, Natasha. Nicola. There we go. Uh, but you she see, said, you know, what the, that's what the Night King would do too. You see, it's catching on. <laughs> What do you mean that's what the Night King would do? You can't just say at random points, that's what the Night King would do. He wouldn't remember he wouldn't remember a woman's name. No, I did, I remembered her name. I just couldn't pronounce it because it's a, a long Russian name. All right, all right, you don't have to be so defensive, Jesus. Anyway, the Night King but, would be defensive. Yeah. Night true. King would just kill uh, anyway, but she she's she points out that you know, Skype, who, though, who, or, the idea that What? The Night King wouldn't the Night King wouldn't podcast. The Night King doesn't have technology. <laughs> He doesn't need it because he's the Night King. Oh Real men don't. I was already worried about this podcast getting a bit geeky if we did a Game of Thrones episode, and now we're like making references to the Night King the whole way through an episode, which has nothing to do with the Game of Thrones. Anyway, is, the, is Putin like the Night King? Yes, oh yes, Putin's a new Night King. Anyway, enough of you. Um, the the thing is, she she pointed out, you know, oh, isn't. Uh, Putin, this authoritarian bully. And she's like, well, kind of, but he's also the kid who got bullied at school. Like, he's projected this image, and people have bought into it, of him as this all-seeing autocrat uh, who goes around bullying people, this ex-KGB judo guy. Um, and she's like, well, you know, he's kind of, he was a kid who got bullied, and I was just trying to get his revenge, um, which I thought was nice because it, 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 it's always important, I think, to, to kind of bring down in people's estimations, these rulers who they hold up, that they hold up as these kind of all-powerful figures. You know, often these people who are in charge don't know what the fuck they're doing. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's that, but I think it, it you know, her point went beyond that as well. It wasn't just kind of um, bringing him down a notch, um, but also making the point that these characters, you know, what are, what are cast as, a, what are supposed to be cast as aspersions, actually um feed into the political persona he's tried to construct so when western commentators or his opponents call him a thug trying to demean him and belittle him it feeds into his um into the authoritarian political persona that is part of his appeal and and or at least at the very least part of his um what seems to make him so strong and cunning and threatening um so you know it's um i mean i think you know it was it wasn't just the kind of um strategic you know uh, right no no it, it it serves both it serves both sides quite well uh domestically yeah the current antagonism between the two countries okay i was i wasn't actually listening to the last bit of what you guys were saying <laughs> that was the best part the whole that was the best part <laughs> i was just getting another beer so i i, I was going to try and say mm, that's interesting and then ask a follow-on question but I wasn't What listening. a great chair you are, George. Like, all of our listeners will be really impressed by your chair. Well, they're just, like, by ease. I'm not overdoing it. I'm not trying too hard. I'm not, you know, I'm just here. I've got that kind of, you know... Yeah, um, I know, we know. ...homespot charm, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the I'm the George W. Bush of, of, of chairing this podcast. So. <laughs> what do you think? What do you think the Night King would do? I don't know. I... I I've missed the importance of this character in the in in this in the season. It's, not, it's, it's just it's just Phil. It's Phil's hang up. 
I'm I'm bringing him in, man. Like I'm bringing him in big time. And I can tell you, like after we publish this podcast, everyone on Twitter is going to be supporting the Night King. Why don't you just start a Night King podcast and just have it? Just have you ranting about it. It sounds like this sounds like a kind of a like you know NRX like neo reactionary podcast like the Night Kings. I'm talking about there being no strong female does, yeah. characters. <laughs> exactly. No, but this is it. It's like some weird like Russia. Oh shit. Oh no, that's bad. We've guys, we've we've jumped the shark. We're, we've we're now on NRX, aren't we? Yeah. So yeah, and any any final thoughts on um, on Russia? I mean, I guess we've so so we've kind of talked about some of the causes. Um, what about the, the consequences? Do you think that this is gonna think this is gonna get anywhere, or is it gonna kind of wear itself out? Um, yeah. Is is it basically just a you know a, a standing until there's another country and it maybe becomes China? Or does it does it have any legs? Well, look, I, I think what, what really made me anxious, I mean, our, you know, over the past couple of years was increasing tensions between the US and Russia, that this would lead to some conflagration over Syria or whatever um, that, you know, would be really dangerous for the whole rest of the world. And so actually that was the one positive side I could see of Trump's election, that if you were closer to Russia, that it might de-escalate those tensions. Um, of course, the Democrats have gone, you know, full in on the neoconservatism now. So they're trying to talk that back up. Part of me just thinks this is their own internal shit. And actually, in, term, in global geopolitical terms, it doesn't mean anything. Because at the end of the day, things kind of carry on behind the scenes under the aegis of the American empire, as they always did. I think it's, um, I mean, I think it will run. And it's worth bearing in mind, though, it's irrationality. You know, if you were kind of um, a paragon of uh, calculating strategic rationality, like, um, I don't know, who might be like a paragon of that? Um, anyway, uh, if you were like that, right, you would want Russia on side against China. I mean, if you're really thinking in terms of the long-term security of the U.S. imperial state, you would think you would want um, Russia on board against China. Which so, was sort of I the mean, Bannon, was... that was the sort of the Bannon influence initially behind Trump, right? I didn't. I mean, I didn't. I didn't see that. But I mean, it would. You know, I mean, I don't think you don't need to be kind of a nefarious kind of nationalist uh, or crypto fascist or strategic genius to see that simply if you're kind of uh, you know kind of a mid-ranking um, civil servant functionary sitting in the Pentagon who is trying to draw up kind of a long-term projection for how you might defend America's interests by in 2050, you would think you know like kind of keeping the Chinese busy on their western border you know kind of uh, their you know with russia would um would make sense you know that would be the kind of thing to do you know like um but clearly like so anyway the point is i think there is it would be wrong to underestimate the degree of irrationality involved in um in resurrecting this uh, bizarre geopolitical standoff with russia and i think it runs you know the irrationality runs deep there is something um which, and I think it's something to do with Russian great power, uh, simply the fact that the Russians are simply kind of too large to be easily browbeaten um, or forced to kind of um, be abject. Um, so to Western states, I think it's deeply unsettling um, and to Western political elites and disturbing that they simply don't roll over like they're expected to. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the thing that really drives them mental and that they just can't understand why don't the Russians do as we say? Um, why don't they just accept that they're inferior and that they should just listen to what we 
say and do and instead that they have their own ideas about how they should run their own country and that they have interests geopolitical interests that um, go beyond their own borders like we do how dare they yeah and then the russian bear just comes in and steals your picnic basket i appreciate the extra syllable in picnic there <laughs> <laughs> it really painted a picture um so yeah should we should we should we um what's what's the phrase put a bow on it is that the phrase yeah, put a donk we, on we, it should we put, put a, a, donk we put a banging donk on it? You've <laughs> yeah. got to think of a Russian. A, you've got to think of something Russian to to put the bow on it. Otherwise, I'm going to talk about the Night King again. Oh God! Um, should we just should we just stop? Put it in a put it in a matryoshka. Yeah, let's. Should we put this in a matryoshka, guys? Yes. Should let's, we, should we, let's uh, be say the, goodbye. Let's be the little dolls and get inside. <laughs> um, so listeners i hope you enjoyed enjoyed our political ramblings this uh this time so join us next time well we'll be discussing the crisis of the media with journalist jason walsh bye-bye do you want to talk about what, do you want to talk about what we're doing next week yeah, um, yeah george chair yeah so next week we'll be discussing uh politics Oh, man. I, I don't know. I'll feed you this line and then I'll edit it. You, 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 we're discussing the crisis in the media with line. journalist Jason Walsh. Line. So line. We'll be discussing. So I do it. Yeah. Line. <laughs> we'll be. Fucking <laughs> 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 <Parking> hell. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know where that's from. Where Look. the person just forgets, just keeps saying line. line. <laughs> Okay. Um, no, that was so, sorry. Come on, you're gonna say it, George. Um, yeah. So, should we put put, put that in a matryoshka, guys? So, um, so like we'll uh, be all the little dolls and get inside the matryoshka. Oh yeah. So, um, I'm Phil, what I'm is that with you in the, in the thing? Dude, it's it's it. weird. What? What? You lost it. So you you and the Night King. Yeah, man, I totally believe what I said. I'm sticking by it. Um, do you actually believe that there are no strong uh, male Well, like characters? who? Like Don Draper? Fucking, you know, like Tony Okay, Sitano, look, they're all, like... they're all like damaged males. That's true. I mean... Midlife crisis males. They're not, you know, yeah. there is nobody it... who's like the male equivalent of Daenerys. No, but but I, think, I think the problem is it's not like trying to find the opposite of like this strong, confident male character, but more just like the exploration of, of being should be something other than the old traditional strong male character, like the fucking John Wayne and Tony Soprano. Like, there has to be something other than that. And sure, that's a, but I mean, and that's I the right answer. Not we need the fucking Night King. <laughs> so there's well, actually there's, there's a dialectic to this. So before we get to the right character, we need the Night King. <laughs> so, so uh, the Night a, King there's, is there's, the negation of the negation. Just the maybe, just, just the negation, the first negation. Okay. Yeah. Line. <laughs> <laughs> Here you go.